I just wrapped up my conversation with Boomer Foster. It was fantastic. He's got some great stories about football, family, trust, and excellence, and how they all tie together at home and at work. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, so I am really excited, genuinely excited. I'm always excited to be sitting down chatting with people, but we have Boomer Foster with us today. And not only is he a friend, but he is the uh, president of General Brokerage at Long & Foster Real Estate Companies, uh, obviously where I'm affiliated. And we're going to chat today about a whole bunch of stuff. And I, I bet you we could talk for two or three hours, uh, but we got limited time. So I want to kind of jump right into it. So uh, welcome, Boomer. Thanks, John. It's it's really an honor to be here. And I just would tell you that I'm kind of humbled that you would even ask oh my to God, sit down with me. me. <laughs> so um, I'm excited to be here too. Good. Well, thank you. So so let's, let's talk about, because I want to talk about a bunch of stuff today, but let's talk a little bit about, uh, you, you know, your family growing up. Where did you grow up? Let's start with where you grew up and tell us about your family life when you were, uh, when you were a youngster. Yeah. So I grew up in a, in a little town just South of Atlanta, about 18 miles South of Atlanta called Jonesboro, Georgia. And kind of our claim to fame is it's home of gone with the wind. So as I'm coming up in this little small town, um, you know, we had like Ashley Oaks and Tara and the stadium that I played football in high school was called Tara stadium. So Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's kind of our thing. It was uh, uh, home of going with the wind. But it was, an, you know, it was an interesting childhood. It's a different place now than it was than when I was growing up. But um, it, was a, it was a great place. I mean, families uh, just taking care of each other and looking out for each other. My, my family was, uh, my parents were two educators who met teaching English at Hapeville High School. My dad wow. had just come home from Vietnam. And uh, mom and dad met when school first started. He was coaching football and she was teaching English as well. And so um, by, I think, uh, December 31st, they were married. So you figure they start school in early September and they're married by then. So, wow. uh, yeah, so it was, a, it was a great place. My dad being raised by a Marine was a, was a disciplinarian and wasn't exactly like, um, Prince of Tides. I think that book, um, right. but it was certainly if we were uh, 15 minutes early, we were on time, but if exactly. we were 14 minutes early, we were late. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so my dad's a uh, Marine as well. So I grew up with that same rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So, so, uh, so your dad had some brothers and siblings. So tell, tell, tell us a little bit about that. He did. My dad had one old, older brother and two younger brothers. And his older brother, um, uh, Wes Foster, is right. uh, the founder and, and uh, was the CEO until we sold the company of Long & Foster Real Estate. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they didn't come from anything. Uh, their parents were, I think my, my granddad worked at the, uh, had a fruit stand at the Atlanta market. Mm-hmm. Growing up, they grew up in Forest Park, Georgia. I don't think uh, my grandparents had air conditioning in their house. Um, and you think about Georgia being as hot mm-hmm. as it is during the mm-hmm. summertime. I don't think they had air conditioning in their house until Wes put it in for them um, in the early 80s. But he has Wes and then a uh, younger brother, Don, and then the youngest brother was Terry. And uh, Don and he were both attorneys. Don and my dad were both attorneys. And, and right. Wes um, and Terry both were in some form of real estate. Terry did a lot of uh, real estate development. Right. Yep. So, so what was life? I mean, there are a lot of big personalities in your family. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So, so what was life growing up around uh, your, you know, with your dad and your and your uncles, and you know, what was Christmas time like, or the summers, uh, summer vacations, things like? Do you have any uh, memories or stories that? Uh, well, I mean, I, I will tell you that it was a. It, 
you know, it was a it was a great family to grow up in. Wes did not, was not around. He he was up in Northern Virginia, mm-hmm. um, you know, growing his business. The other two brothers lived in and around where we were. Um, and you know, every Sunday after church, we would get together as a family. We would go to my grandparents' house in Forest Park. Um, we would watch you know professional football. Everybody would bring you know. KFC chicken and somebody would bring some sides and it was one of those things that it wasn't like you know we spent all the time around a TV either sometimes Mm -hmm. we would just sit out in these old rickety uh, furniture on the front porch of my parent uh, my grandparents home and uh, we would spend hours in the afternoon watching people walk by and my grandmother would have a story for every single one of them yeah (laughs) back then it wasn't like now I mean now we're sort of a cocooning society you get up in the morning your garage door goes up you go to work and then you come back garage door comes back down and most people don't know the vast majority of the people in their neighborhood right my grandmother knew everybody within about five square miles right. of where her house was so right. she had a story for everybody it was so great. so what you're saying is your grandma was facebook back in the yeah, day yeah that's yeah. right if you needed to know what was going on in somebody's life francis foster could tell you what yeah. was going on in their life yeah, yeah that's wonderful yeah. great so so and then you have uh you have uh, a sister do you have any other siblings or is it no you? one one sister 13 months older i think i was a mistake or a surprise <laughs> i think then when i was conceived my parents didn't know that they could get pregnant and right. so i think after i came out they said enough is enough let's get spayed and neutered and yeah. uh, you know uh two was enough and it's kind of the same way i was with my kids you know right. once my son came i said you know that's plenty so my sister is a you know, she's a fabulous person. She's one of my best friends in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, very supportive, you know, growing up in a small town together. She's unbelievably smart. She went to, you know, graduated from Furman, got her master's, got her PhD from Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a part of Long and Foster now. Um, and you may ask me in a little while about her yeah. kidney story, but, yeah. um, well, let's talk, let's, let's talk sure. about it now. And I'll just, I'll just add to the folks listening. No, Rachel was my manager at Long and Foster McLean for a period yep. of time. So, and, and she is a solid individual, but the whole, uh, let's, let's talk about the, 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 the kidney. So Rachel donated one of her, uh, kidneys, and I think it really ties back to your family values. And I think that it's, uh, you know, there, there's, there's, there, there are, there are a lot of things within the Long and Foster organization that are really amazing to me, but I think the values come from the top down. And I talk about this all the time. I used to own a marketing company called Marketing Mania, and I was the primary salesperson for that company. I did all the sales, and I had a team of people behind me who would, you know, kind of fill the orders and make sure everything I said happened, Mm -hmm. which was uh, sometimes a challenge. And it didn't take long for me to realize that you could tell by the way a business relationship was going to go by the first or second time you ever went into anybody's organization you could learn when you did when you do it over and over and over you can feel the culture Mm -hmm. and i can tell you one of the things i love about stanley martin and long and foster is the the family and the corporate culture within your organizations is is strong and it's deep and it's and it's there and you feel it every day and i can say it and people can say it but when you, when you think about culture and values and what Rachel did, it's, it's amazing. So tell us uh, what, what Rachel did. Well, I'll tell you, when, we, when, we, when you talk about our corporate culture, we talk about being a, fan, a, a, a company of trust, family, and excellence because mm-hmm. you know those three things mean different things to different people. But I think what Rachel did 
and donated her kidney actually epitomizes what we think about as a company because it wasn't like she um, donated her kidney to her best friend mm-hmm. or to one of her family members. Um, one of our manager's husbands was in a situation where his, his kidneys were failing, mm-hmm. um, needed a, a kidney transplant, was having a very hard time. You know, he was in a, in a desperate situation, was finding, having a very hard time finding anybody who was a match. And mm-hmm. my sister very selflessly started praying about it. And, you know, she, she figured she would go and um, find out whether or not, she, you know, she was a person that could potentially uh, donate her kidney. Not that she had made the decision to actually do that, but, she, right. you know, I'm sure in taking that test, you know, or if I, I'll just put myself in that space. Mm-hmm. If I were the person taking that test, I would probably have my fingers crossed that please, please, God, if this is, you know, <laughs> if this is what you want me to do, okay. But I'd really prefer not to give one of my kidneys. But my right. sister's such a selfless person. You know, she went in there and she took the test and, and it came back and she was a match. And she mm-hmm. had the opportunity by giving an organ Mm -hmm. to save somebody else's life, but not somebody that she was close to. Right. And it wasn't somebody that she shared blood with or that she grew up with or that she had any special relationship with. In fact, it was something that somebody she really didn't know very well. Right. And she came back and she found out she was a match and she prayed about it. And she felt like that was something that God was leading her to do. Right. And she did it. And the story, I mean, for me, I, you know, I made a joke with her. I said, gosh, Rachel, you know, I hope you don't ever need a kidney because, you know, because I'm not sure I could do that even for you. Uh, but she, you know, just to watch the selflessness of that act was humbling for mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she didn't complain about anything. She went in. Um, I think they picked her up the morning to take her into surgery. I picked her up a few days later to bring her back from right. Richmond after doing the surgery. And, you know, you're down for two weeks and she didn't want help. Right. She, you know, she, you know, she, she tried to live as normally as she could during those time that during that time period. And she didn't complain one time. I mean, right. I'm sure that it was a painful thing. It was a major surgery. Um, and that selflessness is something that I frankly envy. Mm-hmm. You know, I try to be selfless in all that I do, mm-hmm. but the idea of actually stepping out and risking my own life to save the life of somebody else, mm-hmm. I don't know that I could have done it. Right. Um, so I don't know. I'm just so proud of her. She's a, you know, she's special in a bunch of ways. I mean, she's her, she's, she's smart. She's driven. You know, she's talented. And but to think about, you know, that level of, you know, essentially godliness and selflessness, mm-hmm. um, it's just kind of humbling to be her brother. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's an amazing story. Yeah. You know, I'm, 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 uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, I mean, I'm speechless. It's, yeah. uh, I think you've said it all. So we'll leave it, uh, okay. we'll leave it right there. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I don't think I would do it either. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. So, so, t- so let's talk about your dad a little bit. So, so growing up with your dad, uh, and your mom, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, when, when you were young, you know, how, you know, so he was a Marine, I get it, but you know, what are the things that he do to kind of instill the, cause you guys have great values. So it had to come from sure. somewhere, right? Yeah. So, so obviously the Marine Corps, uh, preaches values very deeply and, sure. and you got some of that, but so can you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, my dad always told us that we don't lie, cheat or steal or tolerate those who do. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of what we, we grew up with. And, you know, if you, told a fib in our house 
the punishment was worse than about anything else you could possibly do. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't like my dad wasn't a, a physically abusive guy, but he was a relatively intimidating guy. I mean, he reminds me a lot of my uncle. The only two people that ever really intimidated me were Wes Foster and my dad. I mean, I would sit <laughs> in his office having gotten in trouble at school and I would just start crying. You know, because right. I'm like, I know that I disappointed him. Because right. so, so when you talk about how he instilled that in us, one, he modeled it. Right. You know, he got up every day. He did the work ethic that I that I have and that my sister has. I believe comes from watching what he did um, with his law practice. Mm-hmm. You know, he would work long hours. But he would always make time to be home for dinner with us, mm-hmm. and he would always check in with us and see how we were doing. You know how we how he could help us. You know when we had issues, he always had wise counsel, and he was a tough dude. Mm-hmm. So you know, like I remember, I played all sorts of sports growing up, and there's you know countless times when I would fall over and something would be hurt, mm-hmm. and I would lay on the ground. I could hear him screaming. From the um, and I'm not screaming from the the stands. Get up, boy! You're not hurt. And so it backfired on him actually one time when I was a kid. I was playing baseball and you know I played shortstop, I played center field, and I played catcher. So mm-hmm. this one time on this one game I was playing catcher and I was behind the plate. Ball gets past me. I turn and it bounces off the backstop and I catch it with my free hand, the hand without the glove on. And there's a kid coming home from third on the pass ball. And I sprint back and I stick the ball down to tag him out, which I did. But he slid into my hand and he broke my thumb. Oh, my God. And my thumb was was hanging and I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, shaking my hand yeah. and I hear my dad go, shake it off, boy, you're not hurt. <laughs> and I held my hand up and my thumb kind of just dangled there. And I said, I think I'm hurt this time. <laughs> and so he, um, yeah, he didn't feel so good about that one, but yeah. he, took, he was one that took me to the hospital and sat with me through surgery and all of that. But yeah. he was just a neat guy. I mean, when I played college football, he did not miss one game. That's amazing. And, yeah. I mean, and so yeah. I'm playing in, in, in the SEC and we're traveling all over the country to play these games. And he, right. you know, Jonesboro was three and a half hours from Columbia, South Carolina. So even the home games, you know, were challenges, I would I would guess, to get to. But even my freshman year, you know, I go into my freshman year, there's no expectation for me to start. Right. And I was surprised that I didn't get redshirted. And so the first couple of games of my freshman year, I think we played... We might have played Duke, we played Virginia Tech, mm-hmm. and then we played West Virginia, those mm-hmm. three games. Mm-hmm. And I was playing on special teams. I think I was on kickoff return, and I was probably on uh, extra point and field goal. Mm-hmm. So not mm-hmm. much of anything. No reason to come watch your son play. Right. You know, you're, I was third string tight end on those teams, yeah. and he was there. Yeah. And, you know, he was always i don't i don't know that he missed many of my little league games on any of the sports that i played and there was always something in season so he made sure that we understood that that god was first family was second and then everything else can prioritize after that you know mm-hmm. your your job and what you give back to the community is really important mm-hmm. but it's not as important as the other two things right so um you know he instilled that in us and we try to, I, I, I know Rachel does, but I'll tell you, I try to model that. I'm getting a little teary as I'm thinking yeah. about it, but because he passed away my first year of law school. Right, so, right. It was, um, he was a neat guy. And people talk about, you know, you're 22 when your dad passed away. And, um, you know, and I, I just, I tell people, look, I'm thankful to have had him for those 22 years because right. I'd rather have 22 years with Larry Foster than. 80 years with some other dad. Right. So right. anyway. Yeah. Right. No, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. And, yeah. and, you know, you put that on Facebook here on Father's Day and I, and I read that your dad 
never missed one game in four years and yeah. uh you know it's it's um it's it touched me as well, well and, i'll tell you a story i was which is he you know he would be that I'll, I'll give you two quick stories about college mm-hmm. football they would come to these late night games and sometimes they didn't want to to stay in hotels they would just drive back to jonesboro and one time he came to one of our games i don't remember which one it was and he and my uncle don were driving back to georgia because they must have had it might have been a thursday night game so they had work the next day and he's asleep and he goes through he's driving and he's asleep and he goes through a stop sign almost home yeah. and uncle don's still awake he doesn't realize my dad's asleep until yeah. he looks over there and so he's asleep and then the second one was um my sophomore year we were playing clemson at clemson and they had a great defensive end who beat me up during the entire game. And I was holding him one time, and my thumb got stuck in his jersey, and it, it ripped the tendon off of my bone. Right. And I played the rest of the game because I didn't want him screaming, you know, yeah. shake it off, boy, you're, you're not, not hurt. hurt from, you know, 80,000 people. <laughs> right. So, but I come out, the doctors look at my thumb. They say, you're going to need surgery. It was the last game of the year, and they scheduled me for surgery the next morning. My dad drives my family back from Clemson, which to, to Atlanta, it's maybe an hour and a half or two hours. And I was going into surgery at seven o'clock the next morning and getting out of Clemson, there's traffic and, you know, he probably, I think he got home at two Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. he was there, Mm -hmm. you know, with me before I went into surgery at seven o'clock the next morning. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. So you've got some great memories. I do. That is awesome. So let's, let's talk a little more about football. So let's go, (laughs) let's tell me. Tell me the 1991 uh, story where you were in the locker room, uh, Florida. Florida State, actually. Florida State, yep. Yeah, so in 1991, South Carolina was not yet in the SEC. My mm-hmm. freshman year, it was their last year of us being independent. So we played Georgia Tech and Duke and, and Virginia Tech and West Virginia and, and Clemson. And a lot of these teams were not SEC teams. Um, but uh, so – but in 1991, Florida State was a different team than they are today. They were mm-hmm. in the middle of about an 18-year run of finishing in the top five in the country. So these guys were absolutely no joke. They were full-grown men. Right. Who, and I'm 18 years old. <laughs> right. They are full-grown men who, the vast majority of whom in the t- too deep for Florida State, were about to go play and get paid for playing on Sundays. Right. So so we, we went down to uh, Florida State um, you know, and we didn't have a lot of expectations. I think it was probably the second or third game of our year. Um, and uh, Doak Campbell Stadium was not what it is today. Today it holds 85,000. Back then it was it was a bunch of bleachers. It was 50-something mm-hmm. thousand people. But they were smart because they put the student section on top of the visitor's locker room. And if ever, anybody knows Florida State, Florida State are the Seminoles. So, no, 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 no. They do the chop and yeah. all of that stuff. And on top of the and, – and they've got – Chief Osceola, who comes out with a spear and he's riding a horse before the game, and the spear's flaming, and he looks at you, and the horse rears up, and he pounds the spear into the middle of the Seminole, and then you're looking around going, This is not good, you know? So, even worse, though, I'm just telling you, we're sitting in there before the game. I'm 18 years old. A year before, I was playing in front of a few hundred people, right? Maybe a thousand on a good night, right? Um, and we're about to go play the number two team in the country, yeah. And the student section, like I said, was on top of the, the visitors' locker room, and there's these—it's essentially a, a bleach, a bunch of bleachers—and with their feet before the game, they start doing the Indian 
the drum war drum chant thing. There's a bum 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 right. bum 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 with their feet on top of the visitors yeah. locker room, and I'm looking around going, "Oh, they're gonna kill us!" And you know, I'm lo- and and everybody else is kind of looking around, and I'm thinking, you know, this is on national television. We're about to go get embarrassed. I'm sure that my ex girlfriend from high school is gonna watch with great glee as we're taken apart <laughs> by the number two team in the country. And I, my mind was not right. I normally tell that story in in that's from the context of getting your mind right because the coach walks into the locker room as Sparky Woods at the time and he looks around and he goes get your mind right boys get your mind right and I'm going this is really difficult (laughs) to get your mind right in this situation (laughs) so we went out there and I remembered it wrong I actually looked it up this morning at how bad we got beat because I thought we were relatively close because it felt close but they beat us like 38 to 14 they tore us up yeah 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 so so uh, so uh, how did, how did you manage to get your mind right? Did you get your mind right, or did you just go out there quaking in your? I boots? will tell you that I'm not sure that I had to necessarily get my mind as right. I did play on on uh, as a tight end and that, and not just on special teams. I yeah. caught a pass, and the moment I caught it, and there wasn't a whole lot of running because I wasn't very fast. <laughs> um, if I caught it in the touchdown or in the end zone, that's how I scored a touchdown. There wasn't a lot of running into the end zone for me. Right, uh, but I caught a pass and ran about two yards and some linebacker running a 4-4 planted his helmet into my ribs <laughs> and I had a scrape up the side of my my um I had a, I, so I I I uh I left limping but um and, and your dad was there oh, to sure tell you you're not hurt yeah. right? well it's funny because my mom's from Florida and her family was there and you know she's a gator but her brother and sister are, are Florida State fans and yeah. so you know they're looking at as we're coming out after the game and you know they're looking at us with such sympathy I'm like I'm just glad I'm still alive right okay don't feel bad for me I'm glad yeah. we're not dead yeah. yeah 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 I think the first time I heard that story you uh you you said when you were listening to the uh the the war drums on the top of the locker room you were thinking to yourself this is the day that i'm yeah, going to die they're going to kill us yeah, <laughs> yeah. So i'll tell you another one that's funny is my sophomore year we were playing the university of georgia and, and they were pretty good too they weren't mm-hmm. florida state at that time and they were not as good as they are today but it was the university of georgia it's a great football team so right we were um it was our first game in the sec you know i, I was starting by that point and um i ran a seam route um kind of up the hash and the quarterback hung me out i mean just flew through it high i jumped up i got my hands on the ball but there was a you know a 220 pound strong safety sitting on the hash that he apparently didn't see and that guy's (laughs) running a four or five into my midsection so my body folds around him and i hit the ground all of the breath is knocked out of me. I'm scared because I can't get breath. And right. so I'm sitting there on my hands and knees. And the, and you know, we're, we're at Williams-Brice Stadium, which is the University of South Carolina Stadium. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, 75,000 people there. 10,000 of those people are Georgia fans. But all I can hear is the Georgia fans going, SEC, SEC, <laughs> SEC. I mean, everything else is quiet. So Wow. Yeah. Wow. Great memories. Yeah, great great memories. memories. I'd go back and do it again. I'm John Jorgensen, and if you're contemplating a real estate transaction, reach out to us through the Go With John website, and we can put you in touch with one of our network of great agents. Gowithjohn.com.
So, so uh, let's. So, t- tell me a little more. Tell us, right, everybody that's listening here. How how do you think your experience with with team sports has uh, contributed to your success in business? So, I think that the two things that I took away from being a, an, an athlete, whether it's you know just through high school and then into college, are leadership and hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every day when I go into work. Um, you know, my mindset is, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the building in all likelihood, but nobody's going to outwork me. And that that too came from when I first started practicing law in Charleston, one of the best lawyers down there. He looked at me and said, listen, you're not always going to be the smartest guy in a courtroom, but you can always outwork the other guy or girl that's on the other side. Mm-hmm. And so the way I approach my job, and, and it's been refined and evolved over the years, because it used to be like I was just a big a bull in a china shop. Mm-hmm. I'm going to work as hard as I can from the time I get up to the time I go to sleep at night, and good things are going to happen. And that did happen. But what I found is, as I started refining and started thinking about where I want to be and setting goals mm-hmm. and having a plan, when you put those things together with a work ethic, then the results are going to be very good if you mm-hmm. have any sort of uh, talent. So, um, you know, team sports taught me that no matter how tired you get, you can always do more. Um, I, I don't think anything I ever did compares to what Navy SEALs do, but they always say that, you know, I, I love reading Navy SEALs books because mm-hmm. they're such tough dudes. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about the only easy day was yesterday. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, um, it's, you know, I, I, what it really taught me is the value of a really significant work ethic and that leadership is about um, doing, not saying. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you get a lot of vocal people who are, profess to be leaders and they'll say one thing, but when you watch them perform, they'll do something completely different. Right. And I think you've got to have a consistency. Like I want to lead by example. If I I don't want to ask somebody to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. So if we're talking about, you know, uh, managers or regional managers, and you're talking about, you know, making contacts and recruiting and building Mm -hmm. relationships, I, I don't have legitimacy if I'm sitting in the ivory tower and saying, you guys need to be doing this. If all I'm doing is sitting in the ivory tower and not out doing that myself. So right. leadership by example is something that I learned in football because I was very vocal um, when I first got to college. And, mm-hmm. and, and by the time, you know, at the end, it wasn't about, you know, do as I do. It wasn't about do as I say. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Excellent. So college. Practice law for how long did you practice law? I, you know, when I got out of uh, college, uh, I went to law school at yep. the University of South Carolina. I practiced law for about eight years. I took a job in Charleston, South Carolina, for about the first four. Yeah. When I came out of law school, and then I went to to join a law firm in Columbia, South Carolina. I did. Um, I was a litigator. Right. I, I did defense work for mostly insurance companies. Okay. I was corporate counsel for a couple of different companies. Um, out of the Midwest and one out of Tennessee. But um, yeah, so I practiced law for about eight years. And then uh, around 2004, 2005, my uncle started talking to me about coming back and joining the family business. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, growing up, I always wanted to be part of one of the two family businesses. I either wanted to practice law with my dad or, I mean, I've got something when I was a kid where I said, I want to be the president of Long and Foster. So right. I, I want, because that familial thing means so much to me. Right. And being a part of something bigger than me 
always meant so much to me. So my dad obviously passed away my first year of law school. So the lure to go back and practice law mm -hmm. kind of passed away with him. Right. Um, I wasn't going to move back to Georgia to do that with him not being there because right. that was the reason I wanted to be there. But I was already into law school, so I wanted to finish law school, prove I could do what I was doing. Right. And I actually didn't think about joining Long and Foster for a very long time. But then he started saying, hey, listen, I'm not going to make any promises. Mm -hmm. If you come up here, I think you'll be good at this business. Mm -hmm. um, I think you'll have some opportunities if you come in here and you work hard and you're better than other people, you know, you, you outwork everybody else, but there are no promises. So right. we, I made a, a leap of faith. It was like, Hey, you know, I've got this corner office mm -hmm. and I'm a partner in a law firm and I've got a couple of paralegals and a secretary. And I mm -hmm. went from that to, to being a real estate agent, um, and having a cubicle, um, having no, I mean, I had support from the standpoint of, you know, we get training, coaching, mentoring at, at, right. um, at Logan Foster, but I didn't have anybody else to do my work for me. Right. And so, but I will tell you the, 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 when you compare the reward of what I was doing, practicing law, which was essentially representing big insurance companies. And if you win, you win, if you lose, you lose, there's really no, yeah. um, true self-worth to it at the end of the day. It's like, unless <clears> you <throat> just want to it's about winning and losing to actually helping people, which is what I found with real estate. I don't regret it for a second. Right. So I came up here and, and worked, busted my fanny as a real estate agent, did really well, treated it like a business. Mm -hmm. And um, I loved being a real estate agent because at the time I, I came up here in, at the first part of 2006 and prices were starting to go in the other direction. Yep. It was the start of what was going to turn into the Great Recession. Yep. Expireds and withdrawns and for sale by owners were, were a, an opportunity for somebody who didn't have a sphere yes. to actually build their business. And I would be the first one in my office to start the day and I would be the last one in my office when the day ended mm -hmm. because I was going to come in and I was going to work harder than everybody else was and I was successful doing it. So mm -hmm. it, it was an interesting transition because I didn't I didn't sell for very long. I did very well while I did, but I only sold for about two years. Right. And then my uncle says, hey, uh, you want to get into management? And I said, you know, what does that mean? You know, I mean, I'm enjoying this. I'm making, yeah. I made, I made more money my first year as a real estate agent than my last year as a partner in a law firm. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, this, this, there's no, I loved eating what I killed and I loved right. the fact that there was no ceiling on what I could make. Right. Um, and he said, well, I've got this great opportunity for you in Kingstown, which is a little town that's part of Alexandria, Virginia. Mm -hmm. We've got this office and the manager just quit. And, um, you know, it's got 35 agents and it's got a gym in the building. It's got plenty of parking. And I think you'll do great. Yeah. And what I found out was I was like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And so yeah. I took a monstrous pay cut yeah. to go be a manager. And what I found out was of the 35 agents that were there, only about eight of them had ever sold any real estate. <laughs> but I, I, it was probably one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever had in my life because essentially we paired that 35 down to the eight. Yeah. And, and that group of people with me started building that office back up during the great recession. Mm -hmm. So from until about, you know, from about two middle part of 2007, late part of 2007, um, until 2010, we built that office from eight people to 90 people in a recession. Right. Um, because we all cared about each other and we all came together and I did, you know, I did a lot of training. I did a lot of coaching. I did a lot of mentoring and I was able to watch people go from one part of their career to a higher level. Right. And I was able to get people who were just getting into the business who had been fired because the great recession is now in full effect yes and help them find a career yeah and so every 
I was excited to go to work every single day as a right. real estate manager because I could help change. I could help help somebody do better right. and help change people's lives. Which is, if you compare that to practicing law, I love the competition of the courtroom, whether it be a, you know an appellate court or a, a trial or something mm-hmm. like that. But the monotony of living your life in six minute increments was mm-hmm. very difficult for me. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, there's boy, there's a lot there that you just said we could talk about, and and that's why I started the show. We could talk for hours, but but you know, I'll I'll, I'll add to that. So in 2006, uh, that's when I teamed up with uh, Stanley Martin Custom mm-hmm. Homes, and I was just working really really hard. And I remember there were lots and lots of agents around me saying, "I don't know why you're working so hard. You should just relax and wait till this passes. This is going to blow over. You know, we're in the middle of a recession, and you're, you know, you're 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 beating a dead horse and." You know, for you and me, it was a great opportunity to go sure. out there and seize the moment and take advantage of whatever it is, right? Because the, the economy is changing, the world is changing all the time, and uh, it was a great time to uh, go out and really aggressively go after business and find out what is the new normal going to be. And all those agents that were saying we're just going to ride it out, they rode it right out of town. I mean, they're gone. Well, the they, fruit they never hung low in real estate between 2000 and 2005. Exactly. You could because anybody and everybody could get a mortgage. I mean, if you had a heartbeat and you could fog a mirror, a mortgage company would give you money to buy a house, (laughs) which is what led to the recession because a lot of people shouldn't have been buying houses that were buying houses. Exactly. And our homeownership rate got up to like 70%. But those agents didn't have to learn the skill set to survive in a downtime. That's all I knew was a downtime. And what I found was, look, if you work while no one else is working, you're going to have success that no one else is having. So Saturday mornings I was working. these the the holidays when most people are saying you know i'm going to take some time off i'm in there making calls and making contacts and then i'll be home in the afternoon to celebrate memorial day or labor day or july 4th or you know columbus day or whatever like that Mm -hmm. so um and that's the same thing like when you for our for our industry it's interesting to watch because it's so cyclical you know you have a spring market that normally starts in january and start and those houses start hitting settlement tape tables in the middle of spring um, and then the fall normally slows down, but it slows down a lot because real estate agents stop working as much as they did before. And I yep. found if I continued with my w- with my plan every single day while no one else was working, my spring market was going to be so much better. Right. No, it's true. And, and, and you know, I, th- I think this is also really a good opportunity to just spend a few minutes talking about um, – you, you know, what is it to be a real estate agent and what mm-hmm. is real estate? Because I, I don't think, you know, we could sit here for, for hours and hours and hours and tell stories about what it is to be a realtor. But until you get your license and you're selling and you're sitting in somebody's living room and you're working with them, uh, trying to sell a house and you go through the process, you never really know what it is. And, and in fact, you can go through it over and over and over again. Uh, you know, my mom, Lillian Jorgensen, has been an agent for decades and she still has things that that come up. And I think most folks out there think being a real estate agent is, you know, putting, you know, cleaning up a house and putting a sign in the front yard and selling it. Or you've got buyers in your car or you've got buyers on the Internet and you're helping them buy a house. But this this industry, this profession is so complex. And, uh, you know, so let's talk a little bit. What what would you say to somebody if you were sitting down right now talking to somebody who'd never been in real estate before? Maybe they've had a law practice uh, Mm -hmm. like you had and you were telling them, how would you describe the real estate profession to another professional who's already been out there in another field? who is coming into real estate. Well, I would start by saying, look, it looks really easy, but it's not. A lot of people look at our industry and they say, 
I like looking at houses and I can calculate 3% of just about anything. I would be really good at that. But what you find when you get into this industry is there's about an 80 to an 85% fallout rate, meaning you take the classes, you get your license. Within 12 months, 80 to 85% of those people are no longer in our business because they fall out. And it's because they come in and they think, well, this is flexible. I'm an independent contractor. Mm-hmm. I can work when I want to and I'll make money. And what you actually find out is if you're not working a schedule, if you don't have a plan, if you haven't been trained and coached and, and, and if you don't have the tools and resources you need, you're going to fall out of this business. And so um, what I find it is a little bit crazy about our industry is, is that it's the biggest investment most people make in their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about the, the, the average price point around Northern Virginia is north of $550,000 right now. Mm-hmm. Most people will never make an investment in their life of $550,000 other than their house and somebody can be a realtor in 30 days. Right. And so not all real estate agents are created equally. And what I found is it doesn't matter your educational background. It doesn't matter, um, you know, what your prior profession is. What really matters is, do you have a fire in your belly Mm -hmm. and are you really willing to treat this business like a business and be a true professional? Because it's not, you talked about getting a house ready to be sold and putting a sign in the front yard. You know, that's the very least somebody should be doing. What, What real estate agents are today is they should be trusted advisors on a very complex complex transactions. Mm -hmm. They should know the marketplace is better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, they need to be expert negotiators and those are skill sets that not everybody develops or can develop. Right. So the reason you have such a high fallout rate, I think in our industry is one, the expectations coming into it are that it's going to be simple and it proves Mm -hmm. to be a very difficult profession, a very rewarding profession, but a very difficult profession. And then two, the vast majority of companies out there, they sort of, they, they don't train, they don't coach, they don't mentor. These people come into their organizations and they sort of push them out like a little bird being pushed out of the nest for the first time they're going right. to fly. And they plummet and their careers end because they don't have anybody actually helping them become what they should be, which is a true real estate professional, a true trusted advisor through a complex transaction. Yeah. And I think I think I would add to that, too, that that there are a lot of things that land on your cell phone or land on your desk that you never expected and you could have never anticipated. You know, you have, uh, I think you you get into a relationship with a family or an individual. And a lot of times these folks don't tell you what's really going on yeah. when you start the uh, process. So for example, you could go and you could go meet a, a, a couple who wants to sell their house. So you take the listing, you sign the listing agreement and you get into the transaction. And then maybe a month later you start feeling there's something not right here and then they confide in you hey we're getting divorced and we're we got to sell this house and then you know the stories start coming out Mm -hmm. and you get kind of sucked into a situation that you thought hey wait a minute i I came here to sell your home not be your marriage counselor right but but uh you got to be equipped i think to handle these types of 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 situations when they come up you know and it it's interesting because we, we look at different professions because normally real estate is not somebody's first profession. Normally right. they've done something else and now they want to give their shot, their, try their hand at doing this profession. And so we can look at different professions and know which ones are probably going to have a higher likelihood of success. And it's mm-hmm. interesting because teachers getting mm-hmm. into our profession, 
normally have a higher likelihood of success than others do because they're patients. Yes. And because of their their willingness to listen mm-hmm. to people. Right. And so they come in here with a skill set that you have to develop over time that's absolutely necessary. You've got to be a great listener and you've got to be you've got to be patient and compassionate and and, and empathetic. That's yeah. exactly yeah. right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so, uh, but I, I will say just, uh, you know, talk a little bit about long and foster. You guys have more training and more tools and more things than anybody could ever mm-hmm. possibly consume. And the great thing about that is all humans are different. All humans learn in different ways and all humans want to work with different types of tools. So it's uh, it's uh, a, a great place to be a real estate agent. If you need training, if you need support, uh, it's there. John Jorgensen here. If you want to become a real estate agent, contact us through the Go With John show at GoWithJohn.com and we will put you in touch with a professional over at Long & Foster who can walk you through the process. Again, that's GoWithJohn.com. Kind of want to segue a little bit and talk about corporate and what's going on with COVID and all that. Yeah. But but you talk a lot about family uh, trust and, and values. Mm-hmm. And you talk about your family and the Long and Foster family. But you also talk about when you talk about family in the context of Long and Foster, what do you mean? So... You know, I, like I said, when we when I first started talking about trust, family, and excellence, those three things mean different things to different people. Right. So, family, what that means to me is that um, when uh, you have when you have a good time in your office as an agent, meaning something goes well for you, mm-hmm. we're going to have an attitude of abundance. So, everybody around you should be circling around you and celebrating, even though they're not getting anything from it, mm-hmm. because that's what a family does. And if you have a tough time, whether that tough time is professionally or personally, this company will not cut and run and leave you hanging out there as a because you're a member of our family. So when I talk about family, I do consider the 2500 employees and the 10,000 agents as a part of my family. So and you know this, every time I talk to somebody in this company it's like, "Hey, if I can ever help you in any way, personally mm-hmm. or professionally, you pick up the phone and give me a call and I will come running." And I do. You because, do. Yeah. I, I absolutely yeah. you do. Yeah. yeah. So because I believe that's what a family does, you know, right. it, and so I know you didn't ask about this, but the trust thing, I think trust is, is a, it's a big part of family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that trust is something that's, that means different things to different people because when but most people hear trust, they hear uh, character. And I believe that trust is about your yes being your yes and your no being your no. And I think that's the most important thing in any organization, but it's also about competency. Right. So when you talk about our training programs and us offering things out, uh, you know, digitally and in person and all the very various different ways you can learn this craft mm-hmm. at Long and Foster, competency is a huge piece of trust. So when our agents or our consumers need to talk to one of our managers or our regional managers or me or somebody at headquarters with shared services, they need to feel good that the person on the other end of that phone is competent mm-hmm. to help them throughout whatever situation that is. So mm-hmm. those three things, trust, family, and excellence are, you know, kind of interdependent and all kind of work together to create the culture um, that we have here at Long and Foster. Yeah, 
I, I, I agree completely. Yeah, it's a great, great culture. And, and uh, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a fun place to work. I think it's, uh, we're in a competitive industry. But I think in, 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 in the office where I am in McLean, we all work together. I think uh, the, the feedback from the other agents in our office is, wow, there's a different culture that exists here, especially agents that come from other companies that they haven't experienced uh, in, in other places. You well, know? it's the scarcity mentality mm-hmm. that, that, you, that is prevalent throughout our industry and at a lot of these other companies. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, if somebody else in at some of these different companies, if somebody else in their office does well, they're not happy for them. Right. Or if they have a problem, that other person is kind of celebrating that they have a problem because somehow right. they think that makes it better for them. Yeah. What we found is that, and it, it started with Wes. I mean, in you know, 1968, Wes and Hank and mm-hmm. one agent. And the way he grew that is because the people genuinely knew that he cared about them. Right. And that, um, you know, he was going to be there for them. And there was an abundance mentality. And he always put people before profits. Right. And right. the great thing is, is when you do that, the profits come. Mm-hmm. And so you went from two people and one agent in a little, uh, I think it was in Annandale when they started, a little yeah. office in Annandale to, you know, 10,000 agents and 230 offices, seven states in the District of Columbia, because he understood selflessness and empathy better right. than anybody else did at the time. Yeah. But, I, you know, I would say also Wes spent a lot of time on the front line with the agents. Sure he did. I mean, he came, I, you know, I remember 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it, it's been a few years. We haven't seen Wes in the offices on a regular basis, but he used to come to our sales meetings all the sure. time. I mean, it was. Well, and uh, he did that. And it's the same reason I do it today is not so much for, to, to be a talking head and to go out there and say and to, to communicate. That was part of it. But more importantly importantly to him and more importantly to me when I'm doing it now is I want to get feedback directly yeah. from the agents. I want yeah. them to say what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, what you can do better, because we're not growing as an organization if the field isn't telling us how to, you know, what, where we're failing them. Yeah. So, I mean, that's how the whole idea of trust, family and excellence and communicating that came about mm-hmm. is we felt like we were doing a really poor job of telling the field who we were as a company mm-hmm. and expecting them to hold us accountable to being just that. I don't right. think we can try to hold other people accountable if we're not accountable ourselves. Yeah, you're right. And you guys do a great job at it. You really do. And Wes was yeah. just one of the guys, too. I mean, this yeah. is a guy who became extremely wealthy during his lifetime. Yeah. Came from nothing. Yeah. You know, the, he, the, the house he grew up in was, and that my, my my dad and his brothers grew up in is just this little bitty nothing mm-hmm. in just south of Atlanta. He comes from nothing, but he never... He never um, was full of himself. I mean, when you guys would go on these gold team trips, he's mm-hmm. sitting in coach. Yeah. I mean, he could have his own jet if he wanted his own jet, <laughs> right. but he's sitting at Cush because he likes to be with the with people. Right, right, so, right, right. Yeah, yeah he's just true. a neat guy. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Absolutely. Where do you see, so where's the industry going? What's happening? We've got COVID now. We've got, uh, we don't we don't have the agents in the office the way we had before. I don't know where it's going next year and the year after, but so what's going on at corporate uh, with with uh, COVID? So we were chatting before we mm-hmm. started, before we turned on the, uh, the, the mics a little bit, and you said there's 20 people coming into the uh, corporate office and there used to be 450. So, yeah. So- what COVID did for us is it revealed a lot of things about the way we've always done things and that they can be done better and more efficiently. Mm-hmm. When COVID first hit, we immediately looked at what our agents do every single day. And we said, where do we have gaps for them to be able to do that 
without being face to face to people because we didn't mm-hmm. we can't have your job stop stop and your livelihood stop during this time because there are gaps for them to be able to do this relatively virtually and granted mm-hmm. it can't be completely virtually mm-hmm. but where are our gaps from a virtual perspective so we can keep them safe and not interrupt their business and we immediately filled those gaps we we had all of our employees working from home mm-hmm. and what we found was i mean april and may of this year were essentially dead. Mm-hmm. I mean, April was dead. May right. started coming back a little bit. June, July, August, September have been huge months, mm-hmm. but our but most of our employees still are, are still working from home because we want them to be safe. Mm-hmm. And what we're finding is they're equally, if not more effective working from home. So for example, our county department, we're not missing payments with people because they're actually doing their work from home because they've got access to everything they need to make sure agents are getting paid timely um, and quickly. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there have been hiccups along the way. So what does that mean for us going forward? We've had these conversations since the beginning. You know, Mm -hmm. we want to be ahead. We don't want to be just keeping up. Mm -hmm. So when this first started is we need to make sure everybody can still do their business, do it efficiently and do it safely. But what is this going to mean for us as we move forward? And one of the things that we think is going to happen is there are going to be a lot more people teleworking, mm-hmm. not just at Long and Foster, but a- across the industry. I was listening to a, um, you know, I was listening to Lawrence Young, who's the chief economist for NAR, and he said prior to COVID, five percent of the people in the United States worked 100 percent of the time from home. And he says after COVID, that number is going to spike to somewhere between 25 and 35 percent. Mm-hmm. So what's that going to mean for commercial space? We certainly don't need as much space as mm-hmm. we used to have mm-hmm. at corporate. But I will tell you that there's my feeling when you look at offices mm-hmm. that it's a completely different thing the moment that we can get safely back together mm-hmm. we need to be get together mm-hmm. because iron sharpens iron yes and so when agents are in the in and they're able to ask each other questions and talk about what's working and what's not working for them and be face to face if you get into this business you're a relational person right you social like being too. around and, yeah. and a social person yeah. so i'm not sure how much of that's going to change as it relates to in the field, mm-hmm. I will tell you corporately what we're finding is that our employees can be just as effective. A lot of them can be just as effective from home. So, um, you know, we the, there is a group of about you know eight to ten of us who have been in every day since COVID started. Mm-hmm. Uh, we stay, we wear our mask, we stay socially distant. Um, but you got to keep the ship moving in the right direction during that time period. And now, um, you know, so as we move forward, we, we've, we're finding a bunch of efficiencies. Um, but I don't think, you know, you're, you're seeing all of these companies talking about a completely virtual real estate world. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that that's the where this is going to go because mm-hmm. people can't see a house online and it'd be the same thing as sitting in the living room. Right. You can't smell the living room right. from a picture. Um, you can't tell, you can't visualize yourself living there, Mm -hmm. um, from a video online because, Mm -hmm. and you can't look at the, you know, whatever's going on in the yard from there either. So it's never, you know, I I don't, I don't see robots replacing agents Mm -hmm. because, you know, when you start talking about being a trusted advisor, a market expert and an expert negotiator Mm -hmm. that I don't believe that's ever going to happen. So I think Mm -hmm. agents who are really good at this job business are not, have nothing to worry about from a job security perspective. Oh, I agree completely. I think the future for the consumer though is who can give them the most efficient and enjoyable experience and what is right. otherwise a normally trans, uh, uh, stressful transaction. Right. So one of the things that people much smarter than I did with Long & Foster years back is diversify into other lines of business that are um, home ownership transactionally related mm-hmm. to make the so mortgage, title, insurance, moving services mm-hmm. to make the whole process more efficient because we know 84 we know from studies that 84 percent of consumers like the idea of a one-stop shop Mm all-inclusive experience Mm -hmm. because it's about efficiencies i mean that plays out with you know 
how impatient we're becoming with everything. Yes. You know, when AOL first started and you're doing dial-up, it was fine to wait a few minutes for a website to show up. <laughs> right. And if you're on your phone in the middle of nowhere and you can't get to your website in a, in a second or two right now, you're mm-hmm. frustrated. Right. So that translates into people's patience as it relates to other industries as well. So I think the real estate industry is about... I think we're the true disruptor right. is that all inclusive, efficient, professional experience mm-hmm. um, at, at the end of the day with the best results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So do you, what, what are your biggest concerns with COVID? Are you, uh, what's your biggest worry? You know, obviously you worry about people who get sick. Mm-hmm. Um, you worry about the economy being shut down and mm-hmm. how, the long-term effect on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I give you, I, I worry about a lot of stuff, to tell you the <laughs> truth. I probably shouldn't with my spiritual beliefs. I know right. that that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. Right. Um, you worry about all of the stimulus that the federal government has thrown into into play yeah. through the CARES Act and you know trillions and trillions of dollars. So you worry about inflation. Yeah. But if you look at our industry... Our industry has thrived through COVID. Yeah. And I, I don't think, normally I would tell you the most important metric when looking at how good a real estate market is going to be is going to be consumer confidence. Mm-hmm. But this year, the most important metric is 30-year fixed rates. Right. You know, nine times this year, we've hit all-time lows in 30-year fixed rates mm-hmm. under 3%, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. Money is so yep. cheap. So people are buying anyway, even right. though consumer confidence is down something like 30 points from February. You know, the Dow's volatile. Um, you know, we've got 13 million, 12 million people out of work right right now. Right, right. Um, I would have thought if you told me at the beginning of this year, we're going to have 12 million people out of work and consumer confidence at 74, that we would be in the middle of a a depression right right now. Right. But instead, you know, so far through September, we're 35% up in reported cases and 45% up in in closed cases. Yeah. That is not what those two things make no sense they together. Yeah, they don't jive. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. And I and I and I think that uh you know, the reality is um you know, people have to move their offices into their home. They're moving their classrooms into their home. They're moving their gyms into their home. And uh, even folks that have a larger home, it's not large enough to to hold all that, you know. And if 25% of the folks are going to be working 100% from home uh, going forward, that's a lot of people that need to reconfigure their lives. And that could take years, arguably. I don't think there's any data. But the other thing that you're seeing in most major MSAs is a flight away from density. Mm-hmm. So with COVID, is, with, with COVID, people don't want to be close to other people they don't know. Right. So vertical living, so condo projects, having to touch a button to go up to your floor um, feels not as good. Being in the same elevator with somebody feels not as good. So you've seen that play out in the Great Falls and the Potomac markets this year Mm -hmm. as people want more space and they Mm -hmm. want to get away from folks. And, and, you know, these are the pretty challenging markets in most most times because big, big houses, big yards, lots of upkeep. But with COVID, people are like, well, if I'm going to be working from home, I want want to be close to everybody all the time. So I'm going to need more space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see, I mean, we're not seeing it in D.C., but if you look at the vast majority of major MSAs, you're seeing a flight from density. So the suburbs and the exurbs if you're talking about 25 to 30% of people working from home, yeah. will be attract more attractive places for people to live yep. when they used to work in the city and they still work in yep. the city, essentially. And it works because of high-speed internet and connectivity. Totally. Yeah. All right, so what are you most optimistic about? What are you, family, work, sports, life, what are you 
What are you most optimistic about for the next few years for Boomer Foster? For me personally? Sure. Prefer, Look, personally, I've professionally. Got, I've got hope in my life. Yeah. You know, I, and there's there's been times in my life where I just didn't feel like I had a lot of hope. Mm -hmm. um, I've got two kids who are healthy mm -hmm. and who are smart and who work hard and who challenge me every single day. Um, I've got a, a job that I think people appreciate the job that I do, mm -hmm. which I don't think everybody can say that. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I, 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 a lot of people can, but I mean, I go in somewhere every work and I feel like people respect the job that I'm doing. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm just enjoying living. I'm, I'm glad when I wake up in the morning and I, I take a deep breath and everything's still working. It doesn't yeah. work. You know, obviously my, my body doesn't feel like it used to football may, added a bunch of years to my life. So there's a right. bunch of aches and pains, but I don't, I mean, I'm just, I'm excited about the future mm -hmm. and I, I, where we are in this country right now scares me a little bit, mm -hmm. but I believe in this country and right. I believe in the people of this country. And I believe over time we're going to figure this thing out mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as a group. Absolutely. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yep. Well, Boomer, fantastic conversation. I enjoyed every second I, of it. I, I did too. Yeah, far exceeded my expectations. Oh, so good. that was a lot of fun. So good. Boomer, thank you for coming in. We, we've been chatting with Boomer Foster, President Long and Foster, uh, General uh, Brokerage, and uh, we hope to uh, do this again one day in the future. It's an honor, John. And you know, I think the world of you. So anytime you need me, you just call. You got it. Thanks. Boomer. All right, man. Thanks. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Go With John show. Please subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice and keep up with our latest episodes and what's going on with the show at gowithjohn.com. That's gowithjohn.com.